You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. As if the coronavirus was not enough, our country is now facing the worst unemployment figure since the Great Depression of 1929. Of course, people not working means people unable to pay taxes. State and local governments are seeing staggering declines in their tax base. Sales taxes are dropping because, despite states opening, many people are still not going to stores and restaurants. Employment withholding taxes are dropping as huge numbers of people are laid off. Income taxes will start dropping into next year as those who are out of work file their income taxes. Finally, Property taxes will begin to fall as unemployed people are unable to hold on to their homes. How will courts deal with the double dilemma of an ongoing pandemic along with budget cuts? I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have with us Dorothy Howell, Probation Division Manager in East Orange, New Jersey. Zanell Brown court administrator in Detroit, Michigan, Mark Weinberg, court administrator in Daytona Beach, Florida, Angie Van Skoik, court administrator with the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado, Liz Rambo, trial court administrator in Lane County, Oregon, and Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining today's podcast. Now, all of you have discussed how vital communication is. And right now, most of you have said that you have little solid information about how bad the budget cuts will be or how soon they will come. Liz, what have you told your employees about the impending budget crisis, and what platform did you use? The budget crisis, obviously, is no surprise to any of my employees, as it's made the news about what the executive branch agencies are doing And so I just feel like it's really important to acknowledge that it's going on with staff and to provide as much information as I can, even if all I have to say is I don't really know much at this point. So we've done that and we've talked a little bit about what the judicial branch in Oregon has been asked to provide to the legislature. Of course, it would be best to do that in person, but we can't do that now either. So what we've done is we've sent two emails, the presiding judge and I, to our local staff. And then more recently, the state court administrator sent an email to all OJD branch staff that said essentially the same thing as what we've been talking about. And we have a series of telephone meetings planned for this week to talk about the budget amongst other issues and to provide a forum for folks to ask questions if they have them. Zanell, how about in your court in Wayne County, Michigan? Well, we got the preliminary numbers from our uh, executive county office, and they're projecting about a $450 million revenue loss over the next 18 months. So they have started with the county departments and started negotiating uh, furloughs with those collective bargaining agreements and also layoffs if the furlough was not accepted. We are just beginning to have the conversation or set up the meetings for the conversation for the court to have those discussions with the county. So far, we have shared the preliminary numbers with the judges. We shared it with 
the union too can then share it with their members. And we're taking a look at our budget. We do realize that we'll have to tighten our belt. One of the things we have with our county executive's office is an ongoing agreement that talks about how the court will be funded. So for us, it's not looking in isolation of what the cut will look like, but how does this impact our, our entire agreement? So we're preparing for that. We're reviewing our expenditures, making sure we're being fiscally responsible in light of circumstances, and we'll probably have our meetings beginning within the next week or so. Rick, how about in Pennsylvania? Well, Pete, we have a decentralized state here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, so that means the county governments are provide the funds for the court operations for general and limited jurisdiction courts. The communication that has gone on at the county level with the courts and the court employees and county employees, for that matter, varies greatly. There have been counties that have been very proactive and very open and cooperative in sharing communications with the courts in active discussions about the budget impact as well as the impact upon employees. And there have been others that have consequently passed the buck onto the court to tell them the county has decided to lay them off or furlough their or outright cut their position. So in that regards, we've had some inconsistencies. The, the consistent communication that we've had at least has been from the state level where the state court administrator has been giving this information usually daily, if not three or four times a week to the district court administrators and the president judges in each judicial district. We are concerned from the state perspective about what has been said publicly, although not a lot, regarding the budget shortfall. Uh, statewide, it's been said that publicly we're projecting a shortfall of anywhere from four to five billion dollars out of a budget of 32 billion. And since we're required by state constitution to have a balanced budget, we have to make up anywhere between 12 and 15% of the entire projected revenue. Now that's not necessarily the courts making that up, of course, but they will have to make up their portion as well. So, but how it's communicated, it's been rather consistent, at least at the state level, but sporadic at the county level. Mark, during this time of crisis, do you have a way of obtaining employee feedback to gauge staff morale and to squelch rumors? Well, Peter, I have to confess that I have not been very innovative when it comes to this particular topic, aside from the normal things like conference calls and emails and things like that. What I will say, though, that a few of my colleagues uh, have been much more proactive in this regard. Uh, you know, they've done things like you know, weekly newsletters and you know Zoom meetings and using Microsoft Teams and things like that to engage more of their work staff. Dorothy, how about in East Orange? At the onset of this pandemic, we implemented a standing Tuesday meeting with all of management. We use this format as a way of gauging if what we're doing is working or not. And it's also used as a platform for supervisors as well as managers to discuss any issues or concerns they are getting from their respective teams and units. I think one of the biggest concerns that we had was how were the unionized employees going to react to the new schedules, working at home, and if the resources provided to them were adequate for them to do what they needed to do. So it has helped to have constant communication with the unions as well as having this standing meeting so that we can flesh out 
whatever the issues are, and then get in front of the narrative. Now, last week, Liz mentioned that they were amassing stories of how the court shutdown has affected families in Oregon. Do the rest of you have stories about the lack of judicial services? Angie, how about in Breckenridge? I mainly only deal with traffic and code violations for the within town limits. So there's not a lot that it affects in terms of the people that reside in town, mainly given the PD a chance to be able to go out and kind of meet with people that might not be following ordinances and such, um, but they're not writing a lot of tickets right now and more just informing people of the safer at home and, you know, kind of what they're supposed to be following. For people that were written into court, it's giving them more time to be able to determine what pleas they want to enter and also giving them more time to pay their fines and fees because it's getting assessed much later than it would have been if the original court dates would have occurred. Zanel, how about in your court? On our side, Peter, we've gotten feedback from some of the judges and that has led to us taking on additional remote dockets such as the return to children from foster care once the parent has met the uh, parenting plan, uh, returning youth from juvenile detention facilities once they've satisfied what they were supposed to do there. Our Supreme Court and our regional administrative director have also brought to light certain circumstances to make sure that we're addressing adoption so that, that paperwork can be done and loosening some of the restrictions around what it takes to get documents notarized, extending PPO documents. A PPO is a personal protective order. Also, there were automatic extensions or automatic suspensions, I should say, prohibiting evictions and foreclosures. So all around, it's like the judicial community and legal community is talking and being very observant. We could get a phone call to our office that, brings the issue to our attention is like, oh, we didn't think about that. And then the next thing you know, you got a small group of people working on that. Well, how does this really come together? How is everyone impacted? Definitely, we know that some of the communities don't have the technology that is needed. So we're trying to make sure that we're not just saying email here or go to this website, but putting phone numbers there. So I think we're we're doing pretty well to lessen the impact to the degree we can because we're being sensitive to what the public and families are actually experiencing. Liz, have you instituted a hiring freeze, even a preemptive freeze? As a matter of fact, Pete, the coronavirus sort of acted like a preemptive freeze all by itself. We had enough difficulty making sure that we continued to engage our brand new employees and kept them working if possible during this situation, let alone trying to bring on new people when you can't really be within six feet of them. So we had a couple positions that we were just about to make offers on, I think four, right at the beginning of March around the 16th. And we determined not to go forward with those offers because as a practical matter, we couldn't train people in that environment. Then more recently, the presiding judge and I have had some formal discussions about sort of formalizing that hiring freeze as a hiring freeze. And then last Monday, I believe it was the state court administrator announced a hiring freeze at the statewide level for all of the Oregon courts. But hiring freezes aren't 
freezes per se, as in you wouldn't hire every single position that comes open because there are certain positions that courts need to keep the doors open. So a hiring freeze in Oregon often means hiring freeze except for the frontline critical positions that need to be filled. And we can anticipate a time here in the near future when some court in Oregon might have to fill a position or two just to keep the doors open and figure out how to train people. Mark, did you start a freeze in your court? I'll have to echo what Liz said. Uh, I would refer to it more as a hiring chill than a freeze in that, as Liz mentioned, bringing new people on board would be very difficult to do right now. But there are certain numbers of positions, as she mentioned, that would be critical to the operation that if it became vacant, we would likely pursue. But as a general rule, I think as positions become vacant, we're, we're leaving them vacant until we have a clearer picture of what's to come. Angie, have you reached out to your justice partners about your court's fiscal vulnerability? For example, the local police, the bar, drug treatment agencies, veterans groups? Um, well, we don't really have any uh, partners with drug treatment agencies or the, the bar the, the police department, you know, it's also overseen by the town. Uh, so they're kind of in the same boat that I am in terms of, um, I know like they had one open officer position that they're not going to be able to fill uh, right now as town overall. You know, we can operate as we currently stand, but it's going to be like an ever fluid thing in terms of if we're going to have to make more cuts and will there be reduction in salaries and things like that to try to keep people on payroll. So we'll, we'll see where it ends up going once things start opening back up again a bit more. Zanel, how about in your court? As I stated, the county executive has already started with the judicial partners that we have at that level. So they're pretty much aware. Once our picture becomes more clarified, then we can have our discussions with the, the partners who are not part of the county system. So I believe the newspaper is reporting the $450 million projected deficit, but we don't know actually what it means yet for court services. Once we have that information, then we'll be able to talk to our, our county and justice partners. Rick, what about in Pennsylvania? Well, Peter, at the state level, we have had some communications as well as at the local level with our partners. What I can, one example in particular I can give to you is what we have done with the CARES Act money that is being sent to Pennsylvania. Around $17.6 million, I think we, we are in line for. And law enforcement has been uh, in, encouraged to apply for this. And this will be disseminated. The monies will be disseminated by our Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. This is, in, I guess, in accordance with this burn and uh, the JAG is, Justice Assistance Grants. So we think that that's one way of, of reaching out to them and let them know what how they can assist and work with the courts. Uh, the counties can actually apply for these grant monies as well uh, through their criminal justice advisory boards. So Liz, what did you do the last time your court faced a budget reduction? Pete, the steps that I took in my role were really based on direction that I was given from the state court administrator's office the last time. And as I recall, the last time was sort of the 2008 through 2011. It took Oregon, which is heavily reliant on income 
attacks a long time to recover from that economic slowdown. And so we ended up going through several iterations of budget reductions in that cycle. And based on instruction from the state court administrator's office, we did everything from hiring freezes to furloughs to rolling furloughs. And I believe we, during that time, we also closed half a day on Friday. So it was sort of, the last time was sort of a hodgepodge because it went on for so long. But that's how we handle it in Oregon. We work statewide and then we implement statewide. Mark, what did you do the last time you had to cut the budget in your court? The the last time we were faced with a major reduction, uh, like Oregon, was back in the during the recession, primarily during the fiscal year 08-09 period. We don't have an income tax here in Florida, so the bulk of the general fund is reliant upon sales tax revenues. We did whatever we could to try to save people's jobs. We reduced expenditures as much as we could, instituted a pretty drastic hiring freeze. But at the end of the day, those efforts were not enough. And unfortunately, we did have to experience a reduction in force. Hopefully, we will not have to face those kinds of decisions this time. Rick? As Liz and Mark both stated, the last time we had this was the 08, 09, 2010. And in Commonwealth, Pennsylvania, we were fortunate not to experience the drastic cost-cutting measures like furloughs or job eliminations or closing of court facilities or even the significant reduction of the court services. And in large part, that is because from a state perspective, our trial courts are funded locally for the most part, as I stated earlier. But these budgets at the, at the district court level and the county level, they have been redlined at no increase, but the, the impact was at least not reported as damaging. Now, from a state perspective, it can be debated whether, in fact, uh, the judiciary has seen some negative impact because we've had basically flat funding for the last four fiscal years at least. And what the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's, the judiciary's budget is predominantly funded on outside of what's constitutionally mandated is the statutory uh, filing fee surcharges. And these surcharges sunset at the end of the year, now the end of the fiscal year. But there's the hope that the General Assembly will revive them and they will continue on going. But this has obviously been a thorn in the side too because now you're talking about user fees. And uh, is that really giving granting access to justice? Prior to the pandemic, uh, the judiciary in Pennsylvania sought an additional 23 million or just a 6.5% increase for the first time. And we would have needed an additional $62 million in surcharges or statutory fees in order to meet that 23 million. So how this eventually irons out in Pennsylvania kind of remained to be seen. Uh, especially now with this, as I stated earlier, expected significant shortfall in revenue of four to five billion. Angie? Um, well, I actually wasn't in this role when the, they had the last cuts, but they did it very similarly to how they're doing it this time around, um, where they started with freezes on merit increases. So for, I believe, April 1st of this year to April 1st of next year, uh, there will be no merit increases for any employees. They put in a hiring freeze that's valid until at least the end of this year, uh, where if we have an open position, it can't be filled. 
And as long as things don't get worse, people will maintain the salaries that they have. But I know the last time they did end up having to do salary cuts for all the employees to maintain staff. So that's kind of the next step. And they're hoping that they don't have to do that this time around. It seems like the town as a whole weathered that a lot better than many of the other places within the county. So they're hopeful that this lasts a lot less long as the 2008 did. Dorothy, have you ever had to order layoffs in the past? And what was the criteria that you used? Well, fortunate for me, Peter, I have not had to make that decision. Although about 12 years ago, due to budgetary constraints, we were faced with a decision as to how we would address the uh, budgetary shortfall. At that point, it generally comes from our governor and our administrative office of the courts. But interestingly enough that you asked that question is because we are now looking at how will we address the shortfall for the upcoming budget, which begins July 1st. Although we are told that layoffs are not one of the things to be considered, we are looking at possibly furloughs, and that's how we addressed it a few years ago. So at this point, we're preparing staff for that decision. We do communicate that information very freely. As an option, we have spoken with the unions as well as our administrative office of the courts. And I think that by giving everyone the news in advance, we could prepare accordingly. Liz, what about in Oregon? I actually have been unfortunate to have implemented layoffs three different times in my career as a court manager. The criteria that we use is dependent a lot on the strategic priorities of our branch. So if our court is sort of meeting the strategic priorities and doesn't have anything extra, the layoffs have been implemented based on local needs. Where can we thin the soup? Where can we do without? But other times, layoffs have been based on having programs that are not a strategic priority for the branch. So for example, We have, at one point in the past, laid off all of the court reporters because OJD as a branch had made the strategic decision to go with electronic recording system, and our local court had some few remaining court reporters for high-profile and high-level civil and criminal cases. And at that point, because it was no longer a strategic priority for the branch, Uh, We couldn't support it locally either once the cuts got that deep. And then the criteria for implementation, of course, is based on our personnel rules. So once you have sort of figured out what you're able to continue or not able to continue, you identify classifications and apply the personnel rules. The criteria, of course, is based on seniority with the uh, branch and a number of other criteria. So that's how it works. And I have to say, It is, of all my responsibilities as a trial court administrator, the most difficult thing that I've had to do and something I'm very much hoping to not do again. Now, our wrap-up question. What was the biggest issue you had to deal with this week involving the crisis? Angie? So, like in the past ones, just how we're going to open things back up and getting all of those things set out and planned. We have some logistical things that we're still trying to work out. And officially, Town Hall is not open now until after Memorial Day. 
And so it's a bit more challenging when I'm just trying to email facilities and say, hey, this is kind of what I want. And then they're going, what are you even talking about? But <laughs> and not being able to show them in person is kind of being my biggest challenge right now and doing my best to describe what I mean via email and hoping that the next time I pop into town hall, they then placed items where I asked them to and had somewhere completely different. <laughs> so the lack of contact is making that a little difficult. Rick? I would say employee morale is becoming an issue. And, and I don't want to say this, that it's the morale from the work per se. I think it's the psychological impact and effect that the pandemic has caused on all. I've spoken with many of our court administrators who cite this concern. And I think the stress of the administrators are wearing many hats in these courts, maybe performing many tasks that are not associated with their position, but they have to do that because they're operating with skeletal staff. And then they're coupled with face the risk of exposure in a court office as opposed to maybe working from home, just has that negative impact. I think it's, like I said before, it's not solely the business of the courts that creates the stress. They're used to that. But when you couple that with the personal anxiety as a byproduct of this pandemic, I think administrators and court staff alike are really feeling the pressure and there's no release. When they leave at the end of the day, there's no release from all this heightened anxiety. And so that's been an issue that I've been dealing with and as we've said in previous weeks, this is relatively new, and it is concerning. Zanel? Well, my most pressing issue this week, again, is dealing with the return to work. Our administrative office did release a guideline, so I believe that's going to be a great guide. But when they originally released it, it was like 4 o'clock in the evening. So, of course, you're reading it, and everybody has a lot of questions. And the training didn't come to like another day after that. So getting familiar with that document, making sure that we're having the conversations we need to have regarding our various buildings and those who we share those buildings with, our regional administrator, and also the Department of Health to make sure that we do a safe return. Mark? Well, as others have mentioned, uh, our focus this past week has been on uh, restoration of services and what that is going to look like, the expansion of the types of matters that we'll be doing remotely, what sorts of things do we want to do in person, and what those kinds of things are going to look like. Liz? The same here. We've been working on reopening plans, and as a matter of fact, we now know that our first mandatory jury trial, which is an in-custody criminal proceeding that has met, reached all of its allowed delay timeline, is going to be in the first week in June. And so in the last week, we've spent a lot of time measuring and talking to public health officials and trying to figure out how to bring the jury in safely and measuring out the courtrooms and understanding how many courtrooms we're going to have to use just to do one jury trial has been kind of an eye-opener because we're thinking at this point it's probably going to be three courtrooms for one trial. Dorothy? I would say I'll concur with what Rick has stated as far as the emotional toll that has been placed on staff during this pandemic, working remotely, working under the unknown as far as the pending furloughs. But I would also add that the increase in the number of fatalities we've had in the county, especially with respect to staff, more and more staff is testing positive for the virus, as well as we've had more, more deaths. And in the area that I am responsible for, 
we have the most contact with those who are either in the community or being released to the community, as well as possibility to try to make sure that collections continue for those families that rely on child support. So although we are working for, on a reentry plan, I think the challenge is to keep people positive, keep them still enthusiastic about what they do because of the importance it plays and value it has on families. But being empathetic when you get that call that another person has passed. So that has been the most challenging thing I had to deal with last week and the beginning of this week. My thanks to Angie, Mike, Liz, Mark, Zanel, Dorothy, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are coping with the many aspects of the coronavirus crisis. Dealing with budget cuts while also trying to bring their courts back into operation is enough to try anyone's professional resolve. Thanks again also to you court professionals out there listening and who are serving our communities by maintaining our local courts. You are much appreciated. Join us next Thursday, May 21st, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on an upcoming episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.